Our most gracious Father, we do thank you for your holy word. And we thank you, Lord, for the two years and almost three months that we have spent studying just this one book. And the way that we have seen just the unfathomable depths of your wisdom and your grace and your providence in this book. Thank you for that, Lord. We pray that as we continue our study today, that we would have clarity of mind, that we would understand your word in order that we would apply it to our lives, remembering that your word is sufficient for equipping us, for reproving us, for correcting us, for training us in righteousness for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 49. We'll be continuing our study, going through the second half of verse uh, or chapter 49, inching a little bit closer to our conclusion of, uh, of our study of this, uh, this book of Genesis. And I said at the, at the beginning of the study, um, which was now two years and two months ago, uh, that Genesis is a book about the grace of God. And having studied this book with you guys now for for 26 months, uh, I am more convinced than ever that this is a book about the grace of God. But for us to truly understand and for us to truly appreciate the beauty of the way this book ends, it's not a crash landing. It's coming down for a smooth descent. But for us to truly appreciate the beauty of it, we have to see the conclusion of this book, the ending of this book, in light of the beginning. And of course, in the beginning, God made everything, and everything that he made was good. Here's a pop quiz for you guys. We covered this at the beginning, for those of you who are here. What was it that made everything good? It was serving the purpose for which God created it. That's what made everything good. It it was doing exactly what God created it to do. And what would that be? It was glorifying God. Everything was bringing glory to God. But the story goes from this beautiful scene, this beautiful plot in which Adam and Eve are walking not only in peace with one another, but more importantly, in peace with God, their maker. It goes from that to absolute disaster in the blink of an eye. It just happens so fast as sin enters in. The first siblings born are Cain and Abel, and of course we know that Cain goes on to murder Abel. And this is all a reflection of the fact that God's design for creation had been tainted by sin. The things that God had created were not being used in accordance with the purpose he had created them for. Whatever God, uh, or whatever, whatever Cain had used to murder Abel, that's not the purpose that God had made whatever he used to murder Abel. It's all a reflection of the fact that sin had catastrophic effects immediately. And yet God's grace would prevail because Seth would be born to Adam and Eve shortly after Abel's murder. And we read in the last verse of chapter 4, to Seth, to him also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Men began to call on the name of the Lord. Why? Because Enosh was a man of faith by God's grace. 
And yet, while many were beginning to call upon the name of the Lord, humanity still resisted God. And as humanity resisted, God would continue to raise up people, including Enoch, who walked with the Lord until he was no more. The Lord uh, apparently swept him up and, and took him home to glory. But before long, the days of Noah Came, and that was, of course, a very dark time, uh, and, and sin was prevailing uh, over the hearts of humankind. It was a picture of our state apart from God. It's a picture of human depravity. We read in Genesis 6-5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But then in verse 8, Grace. Because we read, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis is a book about grace. Just like everybody else who's ever been saved by God's grace in human history, that's what it was. It was, it was the grace of God alone that saved Noah and his family. So God flooded the earth, saving only Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, and of course, uh, two of each kind of animal. But it wasn't long after setting foot on land again that Noah himself sinned. And once again, humanity was in this downward spiral as sin was once again prevailing. And of course, this tailspin reached a peak when the people gathered together resolved to replace God by building the Tower of Babel. They themselves would be as great as God in their minds And of course, God destroyed their efforts, dispersing the people in different directions by confusing their languages. So in summary, uh, to to that point, chapters 1 and 2 were awesome. They were were good. Uh, But chapters 3 to 11 clearly demonstrated the catastrophic effects of sin on humanity and all of creation. I mean, who would have thought that by trying to usurp God's position and God's role, the sin of Adam and Eve would have wrought such incredible and such widespread despair and calamity. And yet, God's plans would not be overthrown. God's plans would not be thwarted. By His grace, God called Abram who was a pagan when he was called. He was worshiping the moon goddess. Abram hadn't sought God. Abram had not been a, faith, a man of faith. He, uh, he, he hadn't desired God. He hadn't worshiped God. He certainly hadn't loved God. Like the rest of humanity, he had suppressed the truth about God in his own unrighteousness. But God's grace overcame Abram's resistance, as it always does. And thus began the patriarchal history. That's what scholars would call it, the patriarchal history. The fathers of the faith as God's promises to produce an offspring who would reverse the effects of sin's curse on humanity would go through Abraham's line, through Isaac, through Jacob, each of whom faced a serious problem in having offspring. If you look at the big picture, each one of their wives had a barren womb. And now, as we saw last week, or uh, two weeks ago, the line would continue through the line of Judah. The plan for God to bless all the families of the earth could not be stopped. And God continually did it on his own terms. Not only in each of these cases was their wife barren, 
But in each of these cases, it was the younger son whom God chose rather than the older in order to demonstrate his sovereignty and his wisdom. And that's what brings us to our passage today. Jacob is on his deathbed. He's speaking his final words to his sons, and he is confident about the future. Why? Because he trusts God. Because he's confident in God. Because he's a man of faith. He's confident in God's promises all being fulfilled. And so he's prophetically blessing each one of his sons one by one. And we saw that that's not only a reminder of God's sovereignty over history, but it also reminds us that sin has long-lasting consequences. As Reuben, for example, was disqualified from receiving his share of the inheritance because of a sin that he had committed with one of his father's concubines. But these are prophetic blessings that we're looking about. You know, anytime you're talking about prophecy, it's always something interesting. It's always kind of fun to study it. It's not bad to be interested in in prophecy. I mean, the Bible is um, it, it's filled with prophecy, so it's not uh, it's not like it's a bad thing to be interested in it. And what I've noticed in my walk with the Lord is that some people take a stronger interest to prophecy than others, Um, but what I've also found is that that often flows from a desire to know and control the future. And so as we prepare to study a passage that is somewhat prophetic in nature, uh, I want to caution us about wanting to know the future anytime we study prophecy, trying to figure out the future. Because I'm convinced that really the the main purpose of prophecy, not the only purpose, but one of the main purposes of prophecy is to prompt a sense of holy reverence within us, holy fear within us, a reverence that provokes us and motivates us to purify our hearts and minds and to live in light of the fact that God is sovereign over history, that he has an unthwartable plan over all of human history, which will culminate in things like the return of Christ and the final day of judgment and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. So we understand based on prophecy, that there are still many, many blessings for God's people to come. But that should do more than just inform our minds. It should be more than just information. It should motivate us toward transformation. It should change our whole perspective on life and give us an understanding that God is sovereign over all of history. And thus, even though God is sovereign, we also need to remember It doesn't nullify our responsibility to prepare ourselves for what is to come. And that's what the focus of this passage is. It's about the hope that we have because of God's purpose in blessing his people and fulfilling his purposes and his promises. Let me say it again. The point of this passage is that we have great hope because of God's purpose in blessing his people and fulfilling his purposes and his promises. So having blessed uh, his first four sons, spoken blessings over his first four sons, Judah, of course, was the, the last one that we looked at. He received the promise that the scepter would not depart from his line. It's a messianic promise. It's a, a promise that the, the, the Messiah's line or the, the offspring would continue through him. Uh, and so Jacob continues in our passage today to bless his sons. Now his words do get a little bit more brief 
and uh, somewhat obscure between uh, Judah and Joseph. Um, and, And that's often how prophecy is. But the next son is Zebulun. So let's look at what Jacob says to him. Just verse 13. Chapter 49, verse 13. We read, Zebulun will dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be toward Sidon. Now, first of all, we need to notice that Zebulun shouldn't have been next in order if he was going from oldest sons to youngest. Uh, he, he's not the fifth son of Jacob. Dan was the fifth son of Jacob. So why, we have to ask ourselves, why does Jacob skip to Zebulun? It's because Zebulun, who's actually chronologically the tenth son of Jacob, was another son of Leah, as had been the previous four. So this is how the sons are being arranged here. But what we're going to see as we look at each of these blessings in, uh, in, in this uh, final moment of Jacob's life is that there are really basically two general blessings uh, being given to them that you can boil it all down to. Those two general blessings are power and prosperity, uh, or, or power and or prosperity. So the tribe of Zebulun, actually, history tells us, the Bible tells us, uh, that they did have a good and profitable location when uh, they would eventually come back and take the promised land, even though the tribe had no ports of its own to the sea. It was actually the tribe of Asher that was positioned on the sea. But Zebulun was positioned between uh, the Mediterranean and uh, the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. And yet, while they were facing the sea, kind of on on both sides, uh, they were some distance, not not a whole lot of distance, but they were some distance away from the sea itself. And so that creates a little bit of a problem for us in understanding this. And and it forces us to ask uh, and and start seeking solutions for how to resolve this. Uh, Martin Luther uh, recognized uh, this, this difficulty, and he argued that we probably just don't know where the tribe of Zebulun was, was truly located, and that they probably weren't actually as far inland as we might suppose. Uh, and and that's, that's possible, um, but I think the answer is actually a lot simpler than that. It's, uh, it, it's simply that they were in a place where they could benefit from trade on either side, where, where ships would come in on either side, and it wouldn't be uh, you know, impossible for Zebulun to, to, to have trade with those ships. Um, the phrase, will dwell at the seashore, can actually be translated, looking toward the sea. Uh, and, and that's exactly what, uh, what the Bible tells us they did. They were, they were facing the sea, uh, but that's where they settled. So the fact that God is revealing to Zebulun where his tribe will live one day is a reminder of what we read in Acts chapter 17, that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. And this is why Zebulun would, uh, would prosper. It's because God had ordained it. It's for the same reason that, that anyone prospers. It's because God has ordained it. It's not that God looks down the the corridor of time and sees what's going to happen. That would mean that God is learning, which would mean that God is changing, which is heresy, by the way. Uh, No, it's because God has decreed that this is what is going to happen with the tribe of Zebulun. But everything that we have, 
God has given us every breath, every possession, every relationship, all that we have, God has given us, whether it's power or prosperity or or privilege. And we would be wise to use those things to the fullest for the sake of glorifying God. We would be wise to remember that it's very, very difficult. It's challenging, to say the least, to be powerful and humble, or to be prosperous and godly, or to be privileged and wise with our resources with which God has entrusted us. You know, Christians everywhere should always dwell at the foot of the cross, of course, with our eyes fixed steadfastly on Christ. But those with power and those with prosperity and those with privilege must be even more vigilant to do so. Because those types of people have the greatest temptations to look away from the promises of God, to look away from the cross, to look away from Christ, and to fix our eyes on all the pretty and shiny things of this world, forgetting that it is of no use to gain the world and lose your soul. And eventually, those are the temptations that would bring about the end of the tribe of Zebulun. They would face those temptations and they would fall for those temptations. Next, Jacob speaks of a blessing over Issachar, who is, again, it's not his chronologically next son. He, he was actually his ninth son, but he was also a son of Leah. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Jacob, or, or, or Israel, um, says, Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Now again, this is fairly brief. It's very succinct, but it's also uh, kind of obscure. Like with most prophecy, it, it actually becomes more clear in retrospect. If we didn't have the rest of Scripture, uh, to help us understand this, we might be at something of a loss in terms of trying to understand this, but history does tell us that Issachar was one of the more powerful tribes, uh, the third biggest of the tribes, according to the census that took place in Numbers chapter 26. Um, but they were also a fierce tribe. They were, they were warriors. Uh, one of the things, by the way, <laughs> that we want to make sure that we don't do when we're reading Uh, the Bible, is to read our cultural understandings into the text. So when when Jacob refers to Issachar as a donkey, uh, it's not an insult like we would take it. You know, if one of you were to come up and say, Pastor, you are a donkey. Yeah, no hand raising back there. Uh, (laughs) I probably wouldn't take too kindly to that, right? And and, and if I said it to you, you know, you're such a donkey, you'd probably think I'm saying, man, I I hate being your pastor or something like that, you know, which of course isn't the case. But no, in this case, uh, the comparison of Issachar to a a donkey was actually um, a reference to his strength, uh, to, to his courage. If you think about the way that, uh, that they, would, they would come, that that tribe would come to the aid of Deborah and Barak against the Canaanites in Judges chapter 5, they were this large, courageous, powerful tribe. And Jacob says that they're like a donkey who lays in the sheepfold. They're the ones who are protecting the sheep. 
And that's exactly what happened. But because of their size and because they were strong, uh, they were a target for the enemies of Israel. And it seems that they were, over time, less than vigilant about keeping their enemies at bay. One commentator writes this. He says, quote, Issachar was strong but docile and lazy. He would enjoy the good land assigned him but would not strive for it. Therefore, eventually, he would be pressed into servitude and the mere bearing of burdens for his masters. In other words, they got to the point where they got sick of fighting for what was theirs. They got sick of fighting their enemies, and they started compromising. They, they traded their liberty for positions as serfs. If, you, if you're familiar with that historic term, they would be uh, kind, kind of in, in, in slavery, in a sense. Their complacency, their compromise, their lack of vigilance, their lack of ambition would cost them their freedom. So the question is, what, what do we learn from their legacy? Well, I, I'd say at the top of the list, we learn that the cost of spiritual complacency is great. We learn that the cost of spiritual compromise is not worth it because the moment we put our guard down, we're doomed. You know, after 26 years now of walking with the Lord, one of the lessons I've learned is that the Lord brings comfort to those who are in distress, but at the same time, He also brings great distress to those who are in comfort. As Puritan author John Flavel wrote, he said, quote, The keeping of the heart is a work that is never done till life is ended. And he'd go on to say, intermitting the watch over their own hearts, but for a few minutes, costs David and Peter many a sad day and night. End quote. If you think about the way that David and Peter took their guard down for one second, and suddenly they, they, were, they were ambushed, in a sense. All of a sudden, sin just swept up on them. But the truth is that, yeah, there is no intermission in the Christian journey. There are no sidelines to sit on. There are no timeouts for you to take. The second you stop guarding your heart and mind, you will learn the hard way that we are in a real spiritual battle against a real spiritual enemy and that when you and I aren't focused on Christ and when you and I take our eyes off of the cross for even one second, we are capable of falling into the worst and the most heinous and the most reprehensible of sins. Every single one of us is capable of doing the worst things. So the legacy of Issachar reminds us that we must guard our hearts and minds with vigilance. We must refuse to become complacent. We must refuse to compromise on spiritual matters. And this has to be a priority for us because if it's not a priority for us, it's, it's a meaningless commitment. Remember, God's sovereignty doesn't nullify our responsibility to pursue things like godly virtue, Christ-likeness, and perseverance in Christ. Let's continue looking at what um, Israel says to Dan. Verses 16 to 18. He says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. 
Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. Now let me remind you again that we don't want to take our cultural understandings and read them into the text. Um, Similar to calling me a donkey, if you called me a a serpent or or a horned snake, uh, I probably wouldn't take too kindly for it. That kind of seems like fighting words to me. Um, But, but, you know, because in our culture, it's like saying, hey, you're a traitor, or hey, you can't be trusted, uh, or you're deceiving, right? That's what it means in our culture. But what Jacob is saying here is that the tribe of Dan would actually excel at stealth when they were in battle. Uh, Samson was from the tribe of Dan, if you remember. And a lot of medieval Jewish commentators believed that Samson was the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. And there may be a degree of validity to that, um, since the prophecy is that Dan would judge his people. And what was Samson? He was a judge, right? Uh, And yet, the tribe of Dan, they were the ones who were the first of the tribes to start worshiping idols. Some believe that's why Dan isn't included in the tribes when you get to Revelation chapter 7, because they apostatized. They, they, They walked away from the faith. They worshiped false gods. And we can't be certain what we learn from the legacy of the, the tribe of Dan either way is that we must not compromise our worship with idolatry. Because truly anything, absolutely anything other than God can become an idol for us. Uh, success can become an idol, right? You, you can want that more than you want God. Prosperity can become an idol. Entertainment can become an idol. Your spouse can be an idol. Your kids can be an idol. Entertainment, football, the Seahawks can be an idol, right? And so we have to keep our, our hearts clean by maintaining an awareness of our propensity, of our, of our inclination to worship idols, to want things, to want anything more than we want to be faithful to God. Fixing our hearts and minds intentionally on the Lord Christ Jesus. Speaking of whom, isn't it interesting that, that after he, two of these verses are really spoken to Dan, one is kind of a prayer. Uh, it's it's interesting to note that after he he says this blessing over Dan, Jacob blurts out, for your salvation I wait, O Lord. And you might wonder, why does he say that there? Well, it it, it follows the blessing, uh, or the seventh blessing of the sons, so there might be some significance to that. Uh, I don't know. Or or maybe Jacob is just trying to remind his sons that they must uh, ultimately trust uh, in, in their salvation, not in what, what God is giving them, but in God himself. Not in the gift, the, the, the gifts that God is promising to them, but in the giver. That's possible. But here's what I love about this. And, and I, I, this might be my favorite thing in all of Genesis. The Hebrew, words for, uh, the Hebrew word for salvation, do you know what it is? It's Yeshua. It's Yeshua. Do you know what we get from Yeshua? Jesus. That's the Hebrew name of Jesus. We know who Jesus was, right? But, but did, did he? Did Jacob? 
I mean, history for us has Jesus' name recorded, but did Jacob have a glimpse of the Messiah who was to come? Did he know that this was the Messiah's name? I mean, it's possible. But whether Jacob realized it or not, here he is, he's in his dying hour, and he is calling on the name of the Lord. He's calling out that he is waiting for Jesus. Since we know that Jesus will return, this should also be the cry of our hearts as well, right? I mean, we know that we've been forgiven. We've been justified. We know that we're being sanctified. We're being grown in Christ's likeness. But we also must remember constantly that we await the day when the fullness of our salvation is realized, when we're saved not only from the penalty of sin, not only from the power of sin, but also from the presence of sin. And when we see the way that sin is just so rampant, when we, when we look around at the world and see how destructive the effects of sin are, don't our hearts also cry out, we wait for you, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, right? I'm convinced that Jacob knows that this is it. He knows that, that he's in the final stretch. He, he's, he's coming down to the last stretch of the race. His time is about to come. And that would explain why Jacob quickly returns to blessing his sons. And not only does he quickly return to blessing his sons, but he fires off three rapid blessings in quick succession to Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. So let's look at verses 19 to 21. Jacob says, As for Gad... Raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food will be, shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Now, while these blessings are, are very brief and, and obscure, they nevertheless are overflowing with a sense of hope in what is to come. You know, just like the other, uh, the other tribes, um, these men would have tribes that would prosper and have power, not because of themselves, but because it is a gift from God. God would be with them. God would bless them. God would be the one to prosper them, protect them, and provide for them. And I find it interesting that Jacob says of Naphtali, he gives beautiful words, because that's not a statement of power or prosperity, is it? What does it mean? Does it mean that you're going to have a tribe of poets? You know, I don't know exactly what it would have meant in Naphtali's mind. It's hard to know what it means, but we do see a very, very significant reference to the region of the tribe of Naphtali in the New Testament. Listen to this. We read this in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. Matthew says, now when Jesus heard that John, John the Baptist, that is, had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So is it possible that this is what Jacob was referring to? Again, we can't be certain because it's kind of an obscure, kind of vague prophecy. But what we can be certain of is that the gospel was preached in the region of Naphtali. In fact, it seems to have started being preached in the region of Naphtali when Jesus began his earthly ministry. And there are no words more beautiful than the gospel. There are no words that are more beautiful than the words which bring good news of reconciliation, of peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So getting back to the blessing of the sons of Jacob here, we shouldn't be too surprised uh, that Joseph's blessing is the longest out of all of them. Maybe that's why he, he went through those three in such rapid succession, because he couldn't wait to bless Joseph. You know, we can't be sure, but uh, he does bless Joseph in several verses. Let's look at verses 22 to 26. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from the God of your father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. As I read this first part, verse 21 or uh, 22, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. Does that remind you of another passage? Does that remind you of Psalm 1? It sounds a lot like, like Psalm 1 to me. It's kind of a foreshadowing of the same concept. But we should remember that just before all of the other sons were called to Jacob's bedside as he's dying, uh, Jacob called for Joseph to bring uh, his oldest two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to his side. And he adopted them as his own. And he blessed them before he blessed the other brothers. And let us recall that Jacob had crossed his hands. And once again, the blessing went to the younger of the two brothers. It went to Ephraim instead of Manasseh. But the name Ephraim, remember Ephraim gets the, the, the biggest blessing because he was given the, the blessing first. Uh, it means fruitful. And so we should see that there's a little bit of a play on words here when Jacob says that Joseph is a fruitful bow. And the metaphor is of a tree planted by a spring with branches that run over the wall. It's, a, it's the kind of tree that would bless everyone who walks by, not because of the tree itself, but because it's planted by a stream that gives it life, that causes it to grow, to grow so abundantly that it is just going all over the place, over walls. You know, I remember 
when I was growing up in Las Vegas, there was a house uh, by the field where we used to play and practice soccer that just had this beautiful, lush pomegranate tree that hung over the wall, and sometimes in the fall, we'd be able to to walk by it and pick pomegranates uh, from it after playing soccer, and they were absolutely delicious. And the the owners didn't seem to mind because that tree, the the part that hung over the wall, would be barren within a couple weeks. And they never cut it back or anything like that. In fact, they never chased anybody away or, or anything like that. But this was the kind of person that Joseph was. He was always, always eager to graciously bless others. Jacob says this, he says, the archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. It reminds us that people who like to generously bless others will often be the target of harsh criticism and attacks. If you think about the way that Potiphar's wife uh, slandered Joseph when he was completely innocent, but it didn't make him jaded. It would cost him years in prison, but it didn't make him jaded. You know, he defended himself the best that he could, but he trusted God with the results. He trusted God with, with what happened. Jacob likens him, therefore, to an archer who pulls back on the bow. And listen, if you pull back on a bow and people are throwing stuff at you, you're, you're going to lose your composure. You're going to lose your focus. But not Jacob. He didn't flinch when he faced harsh, harsh accusations. He didn't let up. He didn't miss he remained focused on God's unswerving faithfulness. But here's what Jacob understood. He understood that this virtue, this courage, this strength, this composure, this grace, this generosity that Joseph had, that it all came from the hand of God, whom Jacob refers to here as the mighty one of Jacob. He understood that this God who fortified and strengthened Joseph with faith and with virtue was like a shepherd, that he was the good shepherd. This God was the God of Joseph's father, who of course was Jacob himself. From the vision of Jacob's ladder to the wrestling match that lasted all night long to the provision of Joseph being sold into slavery and and, and exalted down in Egypt as the second in command over all of the nation, he recognized that this was all because of the God of Israel. And this is the God of Israel. Joseph, the God who blessed Joseph, the God who made Joseph what he was, who equipped him with virtue and faith. And finally, Jacob or or Israel refers to God as El Shaddai. And that's a title that's used somewhat sparingly in Genesis, but every time it's used, it carries an enormous amount of significance. It means God Almighty. It's the name which reminds us that when it comes to God, absolutely nothing is impossible. That God is all-powerful. That God is all-wise. That God can do whatever God chooses to do. Nothing is impossible for Him. That's what the name El Shaddai, or God Almighty, uh, implies. And so if you, if you look through this blessing that He gives to Joseph... It's in in rapid succession that Jacob refers to God as the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone, the God of your father, and God Almighty. 
It's kind of like the finale of a fireworks display. You know, it starts out kind of slow, shooting up one here and there, but by the time you get to the end, it's just boom, 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 one after another. He's just firing off one description of God after another. He's describing the strength of God, the power of God, the tenderness of God, the care, the stability, the love, the grace of God. And throughout his life, Israel had seen and Israel had experienced God in every single one of these roles in a very personal way. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, God is all of these things to us as well. He's capable of sustaining us. He's capable of growing us, of nurturing us, of protecting us, of providing for us, of blessing us in ways that we would never even imagine to ask. And in fact, the Holy Spirit tells us through Paul's pen to the Ephesians, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Let me say that again. He has blessed us with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. And that's a promise. That's a promise. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Don't you love that? You ever consider how enormous that promise is? It's so succinct, but it's so enormous. But of course, the ultimate fulfillment of, of, of this promise goes beyond just our time here on earth, which, by the way, Jacob is running out of. No, God's plan, if you are in Christ, God's plan is not just to, to bless you in this life. God's plan is to bless you for all of eternity. If you're in Christ. Now Jacob has only two things left to say. A blessing upon uh, Benjamin, who of course was the son who was born as Rachel died. And then a final charge to his sons. Let's look at these, uh, these words in verses 27 to 33. We read, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey and in the evening he divides the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one, with the blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And so with the blessing of his sons complete, Jacob's attention is now just focused on only one thing. He's not double-minded. He is single-minded. His mind is on one thing, and that is being buried in the promised land. Because he knew. He didn't just think. He knew 
that God would be faithful to what God had promised. He knew that while they may not have had physical possession of the land at the time, they would. God would ensure that they eventually would because God is faithful. And Jacob knew that. He probably knew that his, uh, his descendants would have many years of oppression at the hands of the Egyptians ahead of them, but it, it didn't cause him to despair in his final hour, even though that prophecy had been given to Abraham. So why didn't he despair? It was because he knew. He, he truly, truly believed that God was sovereign over all of human history. He truly believed that God was faithful to what God had promised. Friends, one of the themes that I've wanted to focus on since about halfway through the study of Genesis, uh, you know, over a year now, one of the themes I've wanted to focus on is the sovereignty and the goodness of God. As your pastor, I know that every single one of you, no exceptions, every single one of you will encounter various trials. And I know that some of you are going through trials right now. I know that some of you have gone through trials as we've been going through this study. Maybe your marriage has been tested. Maybe your health is decreasing and you know that your, your time on earth, again, you know, it's not coming in for a crash landing or anything, but your, uh, your, your time on earth is, is making its descent, its final descent. Maybe your children aren't growing up with the devotion to the Lord that you had tried to instill in them. Maybe you came painfully close to losing your spouse, as was Tim's and my experience last year. Or, or maybe something crazier than that. Maybe one of your kids goes and, and steals a plane and, and crashes. They're a Christian family. They're a Christian family. And the list of, of trials and difficulties goes on and on and on. Whatever trials, whatever difficulties, whatever tragedies you have faced or are facing, or will face, you must know this. A hurting or fearful heart needs to stand on the solid rock of God's promises in Christ Jesus. Whatever has come your way, whatever is coming your way, know, don't just think, know that God is sovereign over every circumstance in your life. And not only is he sovereign, but he is good. And his promise is therefore to use every single thing you encounter, every circumstance, every single circumstance, every second of your life as a Christian for your good to grow you in the likeness of Christ. Death has no sting for you if you are in Christ because to live is Christ and to die is gain, right? Listen, you might have faced a situation or, or maybe eventually you will face a situation that will cause your heart to fear or cause your heart to hurt. And you might have thought that God should never have let that happen to you. That's, that's a temptation that we face when things go wrong, when things don't go according to plan, when things don't happen the way we want them to happen, right? 
But here's what you must know. Here's the truth. If you had God's omnipotence, that is, if, if you had his unfathomable and his infinite power, you might think that you would change a certain circumstance in your life, that you wouldn't let certain things come against you or happen to you. But here's what you must know. If you had God's power and his wisdom and his love for his children, you wouldn't change a thing. You wouldn't change a thing. God is sovereign over and he is using every single circumstance for your good. And as your pastor, think about like an army general. He's got the battle plan and he wants to equip his army with the best men and with the best weapons. Or or think about it from a parent's perspective. A parent tries to equip their child with with the the wisdom and and things that they will need in life. And in the same way, I want to equip you with an unshaking, unshakable faith in this, that God is good and that God is sovereign. And that even the most difficult things you will face, God is in control. God is sovereign. If you will learn to cling to these two things, God's sovereignty and his goodness, it will be like an anchor to your heart and soul when the fiercest storms of life send waves slamming into you that would move you otherwise. If you are in Christ, all of his promises, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, it is all yours. It is yours. And we haven't even begun to to get even the slightest taste of what it will be like in eternity to be blessed forever in Christ. Listen, if there's anything that's more dangerous than talking about death and, and heaven too much, it's talking about it too little. The day is coming when your time on earth will expire, and not a single one of us knows when that'll be. And it happened to Jacob. It's going to happen to us. So the question is, how will you stand before him? As someone who lived for all the things of this world and lost it all, as someone who gained the world and lost their soul, or someone who stored up heavenly treasure by living for the glory of God, by believing in Christ and submitting your will to His? Have you lived your life in light of what God has provided in Christ? Not only salvation from the penalty of sin, but salvation from the power of sin and hope for the future. Are you living your life in light of that? Listen, if you have not intentionally decided for yourself to be counted among those who belong to Christ. If you have not come to Christ in faith, I have to ask you, what is holding you up? What is preventing you from doing it right now other than your own pride? I beg you to just cast it away and to to come to Christ who will never cast you away. 
If you hear his voice, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him. The cost of doing that is great, yes, but the cost of refusing to do it is greater. So Genesis has one chapter to go. And it is a book about grace. Sweet, sweet grace. And this passage reminds us of the hope that we have by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, because of God's sovereign purpose in blessing his people and fulfilling his purposes and his promises in Christ. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it turns our minds away from all the things of this world that distract us, all the things of this world that our hearts chase after in futility. Thank you for turning our hearts and minds to eternal matters. And we thank you for the great faith that Jacob had by the end of his life and the great hope that it gives us for ourselves. Sometimes our faith is so weak, Father, but we see a picture of how faithful you are even when our faith is weak and how strong you can make us by your grace. So we pray, O Lord, that you would give us the strength and the wisdom and the conviction to live our lives in light of eternity, to live our lives in light of the fact that Christ is coming back as you have promised, in light of the fact that he will judge the living and the dead, in light of the fact that he will separate the sheep and the goats. And we long to be counted among the sheep. We long to be counted among the redeemed and to enter into your eternal presence and to worship you forever. So teach us, O Lord, to walk faithfully, to live faithfully, to be intentional about keeping our eyes on Christ in order that he would be glorified in us. In his name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus.
Take me deeper 